0: The reading is taken from Ephesians chapter 2, beginning at verse 1, and can be found on page 1173 in the Pew Bibles. As for you, you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you used to live, Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved, through faith. And this is not from yourselves, it is a gift of God. Not by works so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be Be to to God. God.
1: And thank you, Janet, very much. Grace is a wonderful, wonderful word. It means God's undeserved love to us. Uh, Let's pray that he'd help us to understand it more. Lord God, our Father, we've sung in so many ways already today about your amazing love, how deep the Father's love, that we cannot save ourselves, that it is your grace. And we pray that you would send your spirit afresh on me as I speak now, but supremely uh, bring your word to life, your written word as Adam prayed earlier in the scriptures, And write it not only on our minds, but in our hearts, that we would know not only what it is to be saved by grace, but to live by grace. Speak, we pray, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, Many years ago, so this would be when C.S. Lewis was uh, a dawn in Oxford University, there was a big symposium of world religions. Uh, It was... in a a, a sort of a hall, not very far away from the office he was working, the study he was working in, and there was a very heated discussion. Uh, Apparently, they were debating about what was distinctive about Christianity, and the voices got pretty heated, and C.S. Lewis was rather cross about the noise coming from down the corridor, and he stomped down the corridor and burst into the room and said, what's all this rumpus about? And they said, well, we are trying to debate what is distinctive about Christianity. And apparently C.S. Lewis said, "Hmm, that's easy, it's grace. And he stomped off again. I don't think he did it in the most gracious way, by the way, the is told. But he's absolutely right. There is something utterly distinctive about grace. It says that though we cannot deserve or earn God's love, it is a free gift to us. And in that sense, it is different from every other religion on the planet. Every other religion has a sense of trying to earn the favour of however they conceive God, or however many gods they conceive, uh, or the right way to live. Whereas Christianity comes to us, God's love comes to us, free of charge, with no strings attached, save the fact that we bow the knee to Jesus as Lord. Uh, It's a gift. So... uh, the sort of Eastern religions, the reincarnation religions, have their view of karma. That if you live a good life, you'll come back a bit higher up the scale. If you live a bad life, you come back lower down the scale. And you keep going around that loop until you eventually reach where you ought to get to. Uh, a lot of Islam has a view of Allah with a set of scales. And he puts your good deeds in one pan and your bad deeds in the other. And you see which way it'll tip. Uh, that would make me really anxious for which way that's going to tip. Uh, it's not a good way for me, and I suspect it's not a good way for you. Uh, every other religion, even Buddhism, which, which has a view of no God, uh, has a, an eightfold path that you have to, ach- to achieve where you've got to get to. And Christianity comes to us saying, you cannot earn this. It is a gift to be received by grace. Uh, One of the best examples of it uh, that's around in our society today is the play or the film Les Miserables. I never know how to pronounce that. People often talk about the Miserables or simply Les Mis is how I think we British tend to do it. Uh, Juliet and I saw that stage show a long time ago in London and then uh, another another 10 years ago we saw it. Uh, I really loved it when the film came out. I thought that was fantastic. But last year, we lived through the whole thing, because our son Joshua, our drummer this morning, had a role in it where he was the leader of the students, the one that waves the red flag and then gets shot hanging off the balustrade for the rest of the the play. Uh, So all the songs were paraded through our house. We kind of lived it, and it was was fantastic. Uh, If you don't know the story, I commend it to you. Set in 19th century France, the central characters are the justice officer Javert and the ex-convict Jean Valjean. Now, Javert lives by the law. He seeks out to punish anyone who breaks the law. He believes in a God of justice. He does not believe in a God of mercy. And that affects his whole being. It's severe, it's heartless, it's justice, and that's it. Valjean is an ex-convict. He'd been imprisoned for stealing a loaf of bread. His family was starving. He'd served 19 years, five for the theft and 14 for trying to escape. And when eventually he gets paroled, no one will give him work or food. Uh, He settles down to sleep in the doorway of the bishop's house in Dean, And the kindly old bishop sees him there, welcomes it in, feeds him, gives him a bed for the night. And in the middle of the night Valjean gets up, steals some silver in a bag and runs away. And he gets caught by the police and brought back to the bishop the next day. And the soldiers laugh and say to the bishop, He said you gave this to him. And the bishop says, And so I did. And then the bishop gets two big silver candlesticks and says to Valjean, But you forgot to take these. I gave you these as well. And the soldiers look bemused. Valjean looks utterly shocked. And as Valjean takes the silver and puts them in his bag to go off a free man, because the bishop says he didn't steal them, the bishop says, Use these and make yourself an honest man. And we then see Valjean wrestle with himself and with God. What have I done to deserve this act of grace? I deserve punishment and I've been set free and I've been given riches. He's deserved nothing, it's pure grace. And he uh, runs away to another town and starts a new life and becomes a man of grace himself, who treats others with grace and upholds the downtrodden. It's a very powerful story, and I won't spoil the end of it for those of you who don't know it, but Javert tracks him down, and there's a showdown between Javert, the officer of justice, and Valjean, the man of grace. And what strikes me is that it's the most brilliant example of how your theology affects your life. If you believe in a God of justice and no more, you will become severe and heartless and just, and like the Pharisees, like Javert. If you believe in a God of grace, as Valjean came to believe, and the whole film is set in that context of grace, you become a person of grace, and you demonstrate that grace to others. Uh, There's another central character, the innkeeper Thanardier, who with his wife is the sort of comic interest in it. Thanardier is an atheist, doesn't believe in God at all, and that affects his life. He leads a life of stealing and immorality and corruption. Uh, But his view of God, or that God, affects how he is. And our view of grace, our view of God, will shape our whole life. This is why it's so important. Later on today, I will be baptising six adults... God, I'm sharing it with Adam uh, they will say that they turn from their sins to follow Christ they go down into the water and rise again and it's a picture of grace they know as we know that we cannot earn God's favour The forgiveness is a gift we're washed clean as an act of grace and more than that it's a picture of being united with Jesus in his death and resurrection being adopted into his family so we can call his father our father Uh, It's the most wonderful thing. At the end of our service today, we will sing that great hymn, perhaps the most famous hymn of all uh, today, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. That hymn written by John Newton, who was indeed a wretch, a captain of a slave trading ship, making money at the expense and life of others terribly. And in a storm mid-Atlantic, he cried out to God. God, if you're there, and if you'll listen to someone as evil as me, have mercy. And God met him, and they got through that voyage. He changed his life. He abandoned the horrible life of slave trading. He wrote this hymn, Amazing Grace. He became a vicar and preached God's grace. Uh, I think it's the sort of hymn that St. Paul himself would have written, the one who persecuted the church, a bit like Javert, a real sense of justice. Becoming, as Jesus met him, a man of grace, more like Valjean. And in this passage we have in front of us today, Ephesians 2 1 to 10, Paul sets out what is so amazing about grace. He paints it black and white, and ultimately that's how it is. Uh, And it's good for us to be reminded of this if we share his faith, if you don't yet share Christian faith, this is the heart of the good news that we believe. Uh, Two points to remember. We are saved by grace and we are to live by grace. Uh, The first nine verses talk about being saved by grace and verse 10 starts talking about living by grace. Uh, So first of all, here in Ephesians 2, 1 to 3, St. Paul makes the point that before we've been forgiven, we are spiritually dead before God. And he paints it very black and white. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who's now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. Uh, All of us have gone our own way. I remember as a little boy being taught that sin is a word with I in the middle, and essentially a sinful life is one where I am at the center of my life. There's a very respectable version of that. There's a rather foul version of that. But if I am the most important being in my life and everything is built around me, that is a definition of sin. We're made by God to live for Him at the center. And when we live selfishly for ourselves, we wind up cut off from His love and mercy. God longs to give it to us, but we've turned away. We've turned our way. Uh, We wind up spiritually dead. Now, the British disease, in fact, I think it's the world disease of sinful humanity, is to imagine that there's a scale uh, with the worst, the lowest of the low at the bottom, the Hitler's and Saddam Hussein's, and at the top, the best, the Mother Teresa's of this world. And uh, the British disease is to think that God has a pass mark about halfway up this ladder and that we are just slightly above it. (laughs) I sometimes invite people when I'm explaining the gospel to them to say, well, imagine a ladder with Hitler at the bottom and Mother Teresa at the top, and God's sort of standard or pass mark is somewhere. Where would you put it? And those who fall for this tend to say, well, perhaps sort of about halfway or a bit. And I say, and where would you put yourself on that? And most people put themselves just a little bit above the standard that they think, obviously there's people better and obviously a whole lot worse. And I then explain that God's standard is the ceiling, it's perfection. He is a holy God we're sinful, we can't just waltz into his presence. We'd be destroyed. We can't get closer to him any more than we could get close to the sun. It would burn us up. And the only way to get into God's presence is either to be perfect, which is not a good way for me or for you, or to be forgiven, which is there by grace. We say we cannot earn this, though every other religion tries. And St. Paul tried hard enough to earn God's favor as a Pharisee. He realized, he said later, he counts it all as rubbish compared to knowing Christ. But what we can't do by earning can be given to us by grace, because Jesus pays the price for our transgression. The, the glory of what happened on the cross is that Jesus paid the price for our sin, so we could go free. Uh, in that story of Les Mis, the little hint is that the bishop pays a high cost, all his silver is given. Jesus paid a much higher cost, his very life, in order for our freedom. Uh, and unless there is a total change in us we talk about conversion turning away from a life of sin to turning to the life of grace of God we'll never get there education is a wonderful thing and we are totally in favour of it but it's not enough uh, years ago people used to think that if we just educate people it'll all get sorted but C.S. Lewis again I've got him in my head today uh, said if you take a devil and you educate him you get a clever devil It <laughs> doesn't, doesn't, doesn't change his nature We need to repent. We are by nature objects of wrath. And then this wonderful verse, verse four, and we'll read from four to nine but God. That was, we were, we deserved his wrath. We didn't deserve to be in his presence. We deserved to be cut off for all eternity. But God, because of his great love for us, God who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It's by grace you've been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. We're not only forgiven, we're included in the very life of God, Father, Son and Holy Spirit. Uh, In order that, in the coming ages, he might show the incomparable riches of his grace. He's adopted us into his family because he wants to lavish more love on us, as we thought about two weeks ago, expressed in his kindness in Christ Jesus. Verse 8. It is by grace that you have been saved through faith. This is not from yourselves. It's the gift of God, not by works, so no one can boast. We cannot earn this. It is a gift. St. Paul knew that. John Newton knew that. Uh, Our six friends who are being baptised today know that. It's a gift and it's a great treasure. Many of us here today know that and it's good to be reminded of it. We are saved by grace. We can't earn God's favour. But that's not the end of the story. We are also to live by grace. We're saved by grace. We're to live by grace. Let's look at verse 10 which hints at this. For we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. It's not that good works aren't important. They are. God wants us to do things that build his kingdom, that make a difference in our world. But we don't do them to earn his favor. That way just leads to never, there's never enough. We do them out of gratitude to God who has saved us and adopted us into his family as to how we can please him. Heavenly Father, how can I please you, Lord Jesus, how can I please you, now that I am forgiven and set free and washed clean? And in this verse, Paul talks about the fact that each of us has been crafted by God carefully. Uh, The word for handiwork is the Greek word poema, from which we get the word poem or poetry. Uh, Poets take time crafting their work, working over each bit, so it just works. God has taken time crafting you and me. We're all different. And he has particular gifts and talents and skills and passions and desires and indeed life experiences that we all have. And he shapes us in order for particular things to do, things I can do that you're not called to do, things you're called to do that I'm not called to do. And to live a life of grace is about saying, Father, I'm not trying to earn your favour. I want to walk in your way. Show me what it is I should be doing. Show me what I should stop doing. We don't try and do everything. Our model for this supremely is the Lord Jesus, who didn't try and do everything. He would heal this person or that person. He would move on to another town. Uh, And we get a glimpse into his motivation in John 19, one of my five the favorite verses in the Bible. Jesus said, truly I tell you, the Son can do nothing by himself. He can do only what he sees his Father doing. Whatever the Father does, the Son also does. Jesus is saying, I'm not trying to do everything. Jesus is the perfect example of a man full of God's Holy Spirit. He emptied himself of the divine, was filled with the Spirit, and shows us a life lived in tune with the Father. Uh, Father, what good works have you got for me? Let me do those. Supremely, it would lead him to the cross. Jesus knew that his ministry didn't earn favor with his father. He had that favor from the father right from the beginning. Do you remember the words at his baptism in Luke chapter 3, 21 and 22? When Jesus was baptized, heaven was opened. The Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove and a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved Son." I'm well pleased with you. That was before he'd done any ministry. He'd done lots of tables and chairs and ox yokes and door frames. But he hadn't yet done teachings and healings, the thing that actually was what he'd come to do. He hadn't yet died on the cross. But God's pleased with him. As he's pleased with you, as he's pleased with me. uh, I talked about whether we would get Adam and Jacob out or Chris and Theo. They're pleased with their boys. And they haven't yet done a lot other than eaten and pooed and been sick and gurgled and not slept and smiled a bit and had a go at crawling or walking. But they're pleased with them. They delighted them. And God the Father loves you and me more than that. And we are to learn to walk in this grace. We don't earn the favour. It's a gift. We live it out. So Jesus demonstrated this grace to everybody. He told stories of grace, like the prodigal son, the son who rebels against the father disgraces the family name and comes back and the father welcomes him with open arms and has a feast. My son was dead, he's now alive. That's how God treats you as you come back to him with a party. He told the story of the Pharisee and the tax collector, the Pharisee who basically is like Javert, God, thank you that I'm perfect and not like this awful person down here. And the tax collector says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And Jesus said it was the tax collector that was put in the right with God. Not the Pharisee, who wasn't even aware that he had sin to repent of. He was so far away. Jesus met a woman caught in adultery. They were going to stone. I always think, a very remarkable woman. Where was the man? <laughs> it was clearly a setup. This poor woman who had been set up, and Jesus released her. He said, Let the person who's without stone sin cast the first stone and they all melt away because none of us are without sin. And then Jesus said to her, where are they woman, who condemns you? No one, she said. He said, I don't condemn you either, but go and leave your life of sin. He demonstrated grace, he freed her, as he would to all of us on the cross. On the cross when he died, two thieves either side, two murderers probably. One of them swears at him and abuses him as the soldiers all did, the other says, Jesus, remember me when you come in your kingdom. And Jesus says to him, today you'll be with me in paradise. What grace. He, didn't, he, he couldn't do anything good as a result of that. He was going to die. He couldn't even be baptized. It's pure, pure grace. Jesus met Saul of Tarsus on the Damascus ray, Road and turned him round. He met John Newton in a storm in the Atlantic. He met me as an unhappy teenager, torn two ways, between the way of the world and the way of Jesus. Miserable. I always say, if you want to be miserable, be a half-hearted Christian. I've tried it, it's almost guaranteed. Uh, He met me through the love of uh, Scripture Union camps, actually, people demonstrating that love to me. It's good that Ruth prayed for all those camps uh, that happened the summer. That's how God showed his grace supremely to me. And when we get hold of that grace, we want to live by it. St. Paul put it this way, uh, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 10. He said, by the grace of God, I am what I am. I'm not what I was. I'm not even what I will be. But by God's grace, I am what I am. His grace to me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of them. Paul is a passionate man. He can't resist uh, doing everything better than anybody else. Whatever. But not I, but the grace of God that was with me. When you get hold of God's grace for you, we can all tell because you start showing grace to others. You start giving your time in caring for those in need or the poor or uh, the children or the youth. Or, uh, you don't just sit and soak it all in. You start Once you've got it, you start giving it out. And as we give it out, God gives us more. And Paul demonstrates that. And when we do that, we find that we run out of resources. We're tired. And Paul said this. I'll put this up as the last verse for today. 2 Corinthians 12, 9. My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore I'll boast all the more in my weaknesses, so Christ's power may rest on me. Now just verse 10 of our passage is just a hint of all of that. That is putting it in the context of the rest of the New Testament. We are saved by grace. We are to live by grace. We don't have to know everything. We don't have to get it all right. We come and have a go at doing what God's given for us to do. And he equips us, and he fills us, and he uses us. Uh, one last story, as there's just time for a story. Um, when I was a student, uh, I remember the vicar of the church I was at, at St. Aldates in Oxford. Michael Green was the vicar, told this story often, and it made a big impact on me. I used to tell it quite often here. I don't think I've told it here for about 10 years. Uh, he told the story of a previous Archbishop of Milan, so I was a student 35 years ago, this was probably 15 years before that, so we're probably talking 50 years ago, I've never chased up exactly how long ago it was. And the Archbishop of Milan was preaching in his cathedral in Milan, and he said, uh, some years ago, on the courtyard outside, there was a gang of young men uh, loitering around, And they were daring each other to do various things. They dared their leader to walk into the cathedral to find a doddery old priest in a confessional and to come out with a spurious confession, to say they'd done everything awful they could think of and try and shock the old man. And the leader of the gang thought that was a pretty easy challenge and he went in and he came out with a catalogue of terrible things he said he'd done. And the old priest he'd picked wasn't as stupid as all that. And he worked out what was going on. So he said, young man, on your way out of church, look up at the crucifix, the big crucifix over the door, the cross with Jesus hanging on it. Look up at the cross and say to Jesus on the cross, look him in the face and say, you died for me and I don't give a damn. And the gang leader thought that was fine, he could do that. And as he walked out of the cathedral, he looked up at Jesus on the cross And he said, you died for me and I don't. And he couldn't go through with it. Something in that moment, just like the blinding flash of light for Saul on the Damascus Road, hit him about what Jesus had done for him. And he couldn't go through with it. And the Archbishop of Milan carried on with the sermon. He said, I know that story is a true story because I was that young man. And I remember that story had a tremendous impact on me. And it's not that if you get hold of God's grace, you've got to get ordained. That's not, there are some of us, there were a group of us who were friends, some were called into the banking world, some into schools, some into health, some of us into ordination. What it is, is when you get hold of God's grace for you, you give your life to serving out of gratitude. And there is no thrill like being used by God to demonstrate his grace to others. So let's pray that we'd experience that. Would you stand and would the band come back And we will pray together. For those who are visitors among us, let me just explain how we do this. Um, I'm going to pray a prayer that picks up some of the themes of the sermon. I'm going to pray that God would come afresh by his spirit. He's been here all the time. But minister to us deeply, individually. We'll be still for a minute or two. Just a chance for you to reflect on whatever God's most said to you. You may want to ask him questions in your mind. There may be a sense of calling for what he's calling you to do or be involved in. It may be if you're exploring the truth of Christianity in the quiet, you just want to say, God, I, I just don't know if this is true, but I'd like to know. Please, would you help me to know? So let's, uh, let's pray as we stand. Lord God, our Father, many of us here today know this is true. We know you are a God of grace you've met us and forgiven us and each of us has a different story to tell. We praise you for uh, St. Paul putting this so clearly from his own story. We praise you for the story of John Newton and the hymn we'll sing Amazing Grace in a little while. We praise you that though we were dead in our sins, Jesus died for us, for me, for each one of us. Come now by your spirit And write these truths afresh on our hearts. Wash us clean, like the water of baptism signifies. Show us the good things you've prepared for us. But come now by your spirit and minister to your people, we pray. someone exploring the Christian faith and saying to God I'd like to know if this is true just ask God to show you the next steps it may be coming back here week by week it may be signing up for our next Alpha course it may be saying hello to me on the door and I'll give you a little booklet that will help just ask God to show you the next step some of you, you know you are Christians but you're not walking in that grace and it may just be the God's calling you to set aside time each day for your relationship with him, to be still before him, to meditate on his words in the scriptures, for that relationship to grow again. So we're praying before the service. A couple of the prayer team had pictures. One was of a watering can, watering plants that had got dusty and dry, and God pouring his water down on us to wash away the dust and bring fresh life That might be just what you want. You feel dry inside, ask him to do that. Another picture was one of those light bulbs with a dimmer switch and God turning up the power so the light glows more brightly. Lord, we long to shine more brightly with your light. So pour your spirit on us this morning, we pray. There's also a picture of just a rag doll there. Lifeless. I'm we not quite sure what that was about. If that was for you, you'll know it. But we know that God loves to take something that's lifeless and bring it to life. If you like prayer, there'll be an opportunity after the service to receive prayer for any of those things. Or you could come as we sing our song now and folks would pray very simply with you if you come forward. But we're going to sing this song, Amazing Grace. And Lord, as we sing it, pour your spirit afresh into our lives and fill us with a great joy and gratitude and worship and wonder at what you've done for us and set us free to live for you lives of grace and we ask it all in Jesus' name, amen.